The New Testament reading is taken from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 33. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Let's pray again together. God, our Father, we thank you for the riches and the treasure of your word. It is no ordinary word. Father, grant us grace today to hear the living voice and the active voice of God pouring through your scriptures, we pray, and change our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit. And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and may the meditation of all of our hearts in this place, may they be found to be acceptable in your sight, for we pray it in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Well, our text today from Ephesians uh, covers this important um, topic of marriage and uh, gender roles. And there are a few things so distasteful uh, in our, our current age, a few things so distasteful as the Christian view of marriage. And I'll go a step further. There are a few things so distasteful to our modern church that the assertion uh, of what Paul says about the roles of men and the roles of women in the church and in the family, there's few things so distasteful to the church that such things are still binding spiritually and morally uh, for the people of God. And um, I, I really believe today that this passage from Ephesians 5 is remarkably and unspeakably important to us and to the broader church. The assault, the, the, the wide-ranged assault on the biblical concepts of marriage and of family is raging. And we are on the cusp of something socially. We are on the brink of something socially that's gonna change everything as we know it. Um, there's coming, I believe, I'm not sure what it is, but there's coming a degree of the toxicity of our culture with respect to these Christian structures of family and of marriage. Um, there's coming a toxic moment for us as a church, um, and we're going to need to know who we are and where we stand. And I'd like to deal with this passage in two parts. 
I'd like to deal with especially these verses today at a moment where there's, there's less fog in my head. And uh, today what I'd like to do is to go back one verse uh, to, uh, to Ephesians uh, 20. Where are we here? To Ephesians 20. And uh, to look at what Paul has to say, uh, sorry, to Ephesians 21, and to look what Paul has to say about mutual submission, which is the uh, reality upon which Paul builds his whole teaching of marriage. And then next week, I'd like to spend a larger amount of time thinking carefully through with you the biblical concept of marriage what it means for a husband to be a husband, and a wife to be a wife, and a man to be a man, and a woman to be a woman. And that's going to take much more time and, again, much less fog in my head. So let's let's leave that for next week. Everything that appears in our passage today from verses 22 onwards, all of this relates directly to the injunction in verse 21, that followers of Jesus should submit themselves to one another out of their profound reverence for Christ, really in Paul's language here, in godly fear of the person of the Lord Jesus. Now some of us no doubt have trouble with the word submit. The word can suggest violence, it can suggest force, It can suggest inequality or injustice. And we can think of someone bending us and twisting us and plying us until we yield. The world of MMA, mixed martial arts, comes to my mind. And I can think of a wrestler who is pushing an opponent's sinews to the point of snap, crackle, pop until he has to tap on the mat in sheer pain where submission is the only viable option. But that's not the biblical view here. That's not what the Bible means about submission. Submission in the biblical sense is not passive like this. It isn't a submission that's wrested from us by force. Rather, biblically, submission is the lead actor. Submission is proactive. Submission is what we do voluntarily by means of a stout and strapping and stalwart faith. Submission in the biblical mind is not a sign of weakness, and it's not a sign of conquest. Biblical submission demonstrates the presence of an athletic and muscular mind. Submission is a strong thing. We submit to one another as Christians because we're strong enough to do it. That's the first point here about submission. Well, if we submit to one another because we're strong enough by grace to do it, the immediate question will come to us, to do what? Strong enough to do what? What does submission look like? Again, submission is not collapsing to the whims of those around us, but in Paul's mind, submission is active and intelligent service to the needs of my brothers and my sisters. And it's precisely what Paul instructs us to do in Romans chapter 12, to love one another with brotherly affection, the word that Paul uses in the original is Philadelphia here, and more importantly, 
to outdo one another in showing each other honor. And by the word honor here, Paul simply means paying careful attention to each other's needs. In other words, grace calls us to be the kind of person that is far more convinced of the importance of serving my brother's needs, my sister's needs, than in minding my own affairs. Outdo one another in this, Paul says. Let there be a holy competition, as it were, in this. Be better than your brother at being mindful of your brother. Be better than your sister at being mindful of your sister's needs. And if this were everyone's aim in life, what a wonderful world it would be and what a safe and secure place it would be in a marriage for a woman to submit to her husband's lead. Now, I'm not going to say that this is hard to do. I'm going to say that by nature, this is impossible to do. Sin has made us, I've been reading this science fiction novel recently, and I've got this phrase in my mind, sin has made us into these gravity wells. Our natural default is to consider our own needs first. Our natural default is to serve our own needs first, and we do it gosh darn well. We're good at it. We can't help ourselves. Now, if you look around the world, there are all kinds of exceptions. There are people across the globe bending over backwards to help each other. But my brothers and my sisters, you need to understand today that it's common grace that enables them to do so. Many years ago, God looked down on the human population and he saw something that was very distressing. He saw that, and I quote, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only and continually evil. Every, only, continually evil. There's not a lot of wiggle room in there. But there's common grace. There's common grace all around us, and God pours out his goodness graciously like a life-giving shower, and he relieves the world of its natural selfishness so that there can be a semblance of order and a semblance of decency so that we do not devour ourselves as we would by nature. Nevertheless... Common grace, notwithstanding, self-love is the underlying principle of the human heart. What is the flesh, writes Thomas Goodwin in the Old Puritan? That is, what is man by nature? Professedly, he writes, it is this, it is self-love. When man has nothing in him at all, but love of himself. It is the bottom of original sin if you study it a thousand years. Self-love is the law of sin, even as love to God is the soul of the law of God. The other day, while I was at the grocery store and inside the grocery store, someone backed into my car 
Someone put a ding in my hatch and I came out and there was a ding but no note. There was no apology. It was a plain hit and run. And the logic that went through that driver's head, even though I have no idea who the driver was, the logic that dominated their brain in that split second when they decided to drive away went something like this, I am more important. My needs are more important. The stranger is less important than I. And the church can become infected with this very thing, the idea that I am more important. Paul had to write the Corinthian church because they were using the Lord's Supper, of all things, They were using the Lord's Supper as a means to gorge and to swell their personal appetites and ambition to satisfy themselves at the expense of their brothers and their sisters. And so they would arrive at this sacramental feast and instead of waiting for everyone to sit down and to enjoy the goodness of the Lord together, they would rush ahead like those images of shoppers on Black Friday in Walmart. They'd rush ahead to the Lord's Supper and they would tuck into the bread. And they would tuck into the wine so enthusiastically that when everyone else arrived, it was all gone. And they're rolling around with these big swollen stomachs, drunk. (laughs) And Paul says to them, one of you is left with nothing, and the other of you has so much that he's rolling around in a drunken stupor. (laughs) Well, so much for the purity of the apostolic church. So much for the the pristine nature of the ancient church. I mean, this is the church of Acts. This is the church under the apostles' care. And the banner above that church of that love feast in Corinth read this, I am more important. I am more important than anyone else. And my brothers and sisters, the gospel comes to us today with astonishing force. And it says to us, you are not more important than your brother. You are not more important than your sister. And grace sets us free to be different. Grace brings us to Jesus. Grace unites us to Jesus. Grace fills us with Jesus and grace puts before us his compelling example. And Paul writes this to us in Philippians 2, Have this mind in you. Have this mind in you, which was given to you in Christ Jesus. He he gave it to you by grace, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. And he took the form of a servant. With awe and fear, Paul says to us today, look to the example of the Lord Jesus. Consider his selfless humility and submit yourselves to one another and refuse the worldly pattern. Refuse the sinful mantra which whispers in your ear, you are more important. Your needs are more important. Now Paul doesn't say here by submit that we're to yield willy-nilly to anything that comes our way. If a man comes into our church today and he tells me that he has a need, 
that I should abandon this church's reformed and Catholic orthodoxy, that I should start to preach more and more the innate goodness of humanity and the resilience and the triumph of the human will, if he tells me that I need to spend less time in long prayers, less time reading long passages of Scripture, more time accommodating myself to the whims and the fancies of this world and its pleasures, I am in no way, if this person comes to me, bound to submit to him. And in that case, the apostolic confession holds true. We must obey God rather than men. We are never, ever to submit to anything that fosters godlessness. We are never to encourage any form of sin whatsoever. However, if this confused Pelagian fellow comes into our church, if he has a genuine need, then the gospel bids me to be his servant and in humility to count this theologically confused man more significant than myself. And so the Calvinist submits to the Arminian. And more important, he loves him. He serves him. Submit yourself to one another. Outdo each other in showing honor. Consider the other person's needs more important, more significant than your own. Well, that sounds all very well and nice in the abstract, and it can be accomplished quite easily, abstractly. It's very easy to be an abstract saint, but it's the concrete experience of obedience that counts, and it's the concrete experience of obedience that costs us. And the cost today of submitting to your brother or your sister of being aware of their needs is keenly felt among other places in the whole realm of your time. Time is precious to us. We've only got so much of it, right? It's slipping away every moment, every moment. And when someone else's needs, they press in and they begin to make claim on my time, we can get very uncomfortable indeed and begin to feel rather peevishly that this is my time that's being requested by this other person's needs, and my time is very important to me, perhaps more important than that person there. One of the things that draws me consistently to the writings of C.S. Lewis is just this, how he understands the reality of a disciple's time. And in the Screwtape letters, the senior devil Screwtape, he writes this following advice to his junior tempter, Wormwood. And he says this, he says, now you will have noticed that nothing throws your patient into a passion so easily as to find a tract of time which he reckoned on having at his own disposal unexpectedly taken from him. It is the unexpected visitor when he looked forward to a quiet evening, or the friend's talkative wife turning up when he looked forward to a meeting of minds with his friend. These things that throw him out of gear and they anger him because he regards his time as his own, 
and he feels that it's being stolen from him. You must therefore zealously guard in your patient's mind this curious assumption that my time is my own. <laughs> and Lewis hits the nail on the head. Before we know it, we can start thinking this way and believing dogmatically that my time belongs to me. How dare anyone presume to take it? And when we fall victim to this demonic suggestion, which runs contrary to Paul's exhortation today to submit to each other, when we fall victim to this and we become agitated with the peevish complaint that my time is being assaulted by a crop of interruptions, then we will be among those who fail to recognize that it was the Lord himself who was interrupting us. I came to you hungry, but you gave me no food. I came to you thirsty, but you gave me no drink. I came to you a stranger, but you did not welcome you. I came to you knocking naked, but you did not clothe me. I called upon you. I was sick and in prison, but you did not visit me. And if only my brothers and sisters, they had realized that it was the Lord himself that comes to us in these interruptions, that comes to us in the least of our brethren. We would not have said to ourselves, my time is my own. And we would not have said to ourselves, this brother or this sister is less important than I am. And so today I bid you to hear the word of the Lord. Submit yourselves one to another out of reverence for Christ. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.